0: how you doing then how you doing it's tuesday the 21st of november 2023 i'm richie allen welcome to the program do drop me a line please via the website via the app i've got two terrific guests once again for you this tuesday and it's lovely to be with you
1: it's the bbg not the bbc this is your richie allen show live from the magnificent city of salford
2: It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on RichieAllen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now,
0: Kate Deeming is an artist, a dancer and entertainer. She's much more than that. These days, she's also working with the Scottish Union for Education. She is their parent and support group coordinator. And she's written for the Scottish Union for Education newsletter a very interesting story about an incident at a nursery school involving a trans teacher. We'll talk to that and the implications of it with Kate Deeming this hour. Don't miss her. Can't wait to meet her. And later on, you may have heard this, but the BBC has uh, discontinued somewhat the Top Gear programme. You know, the Motorhead, the Petrolhead programme. Now, Steve Berry is an awesome dude. He's a great guy. And, uh, well, Steve's done it all, really, in television and radio and magazines and in newspapers. And, of course, he was one of the original Top Gear presenters. So what's going on? Manchester's Steve Berry will be on the programme. He presents a brilliant programme for Fab Radio International. And uh, our mutual friend Paul Ripley connected us, so we'll talk to Steve Berry a little bit later on. Yeah, so a good old programme today. Lively, lively, lively. Come here and tell you, come here and tell you, are you watching? Chris Whitty, the Chief Medical Officer, giving testimony to the COVID inquiry. You're not? Why? Because it bores the bejesus out of you, because you have more brains than to watch that. But it is very interesting. Let me give you the low lights of it today. So he's uh, England's chief medical officer. I should have said that. Wales has its own one. Scotland has its own one, although she's always pissed. And I'm sure there's one for Northern Ireland as well. Imagine the cheek. Imagine the irony. Talking about being pissed. Anyway, not that I'm pissed right now. I'm not. Of course I'm not. Jesus, never. Not when I'm on air. Not at all. Not at all, at all. Anyway, so Whitty is giving testimony to the inquiry, right? Hugo Keith is the KC, the King's Counsel, leading the questioning. There are other lawyers present, but he's one of the main men, is Hugo Keith. Anyway, um, Whitty said today that from the beginning of the pandemic, all the options were very bad, some were a bit worse. Keep that in mind. In fact, I've got the audio. He said, with the benefit of hindsight, we went a bit too late. With the first lockdown. Again, this is something we predicted, didn't we? You, me, and everybody else when they announced the inquiry. Uh, He says the way Boris Johnson made decisions was unique to him. That's a quote, unique to Boris. But he stopped short of personally criticising Johnson. He said it caused, quote, quite a row when Dominic Cummings began coming to stage meetings. He was Johnson's chief advisor. Whitty says he thought it was a sensible idea. And as I mentioned yesterday, keep in mind that the inquiry inquiry, is currently looking at pandemic decision making. So let's hear some of the testimony from Whitty today, including some of the stuff the BBC has glossed over. You'll you'll understand why in a moment maybe the BBC glossed over some of this. Here's Chris Whitty. I'm pretty sure you will hear Hugo Keith speaking first. All right.
2: you refer in your statement to the fact that um, um, disgracefully abuse uh, was directed from the public and some sections of the press and social media uh, against yourself and the government's chief scientific advisor and, and, and members of SAGE. I'm not going to ask you um, for your reaction to that. It's, it's absolutely self-evident. And that that was a disgraceful thing to occur. Um, you must have thought, you must have wondered, though, during the course of of this pandemic, to to what extent yourself and your fellow scientists on Sage would, would, may by virtue of your Herculean contribution, be laying yourself open to future legal liability.
0: Wow! Listen to this. Not a mention of this on the BBC or anywhere else today. For whatever reason, he's getting into. I've no idea why Hugo Case is getting into this. He's asking him. Did it? Did it occur to you and your mates that you might be opening yourself up, opening yourself up to litigation further down the line, by you know being a part of these measures, these draconian measures, these measures never before foisted upon a civilization, a public anywhere. This is interesting, isn't it? Where is this going? Why did you interrupt it, Baldy? Because I had to mark it. He's asking him. Are you worried?
3: Yes, and I think I I was not in my own position of being a government employee. I was much less concerned, but I've always been worried, and I have been for some time, uh, that um, it it is ambiguous at best uh, where scientists who are either seconded into something or not employed by government at all, but are giving their time in various forms formal or informal to what extent are they automatically covered by some form of indemnity against frivolous or indeed actual uh, civil claims
0: amazing this is this is outstanding this is, i mean again nobody is picking up on this that's because they're not us this is the independent media it is the truly independent media of course we're going to talk about this but they don't talk about it on sky or the bbc so Whitty says, well, you know, some bloke who's invited to give uh, his opinion or her opinion to the government, you know, it, it it should be kind of self-evident that you'd be indemnified against any action, that the action, if there was any legal action, it would have to be borne, it would have to be shouldered by the government, but not people like me. But I would say, ha ha, you're the chief medical officer of England. What if it could be demonstrated that you knew better? That you knew, that you knew better. And guess what, dear listener, in a few moments time, I'm going to prove that Chris Whitty knew better. Let's hear how this one plays out.
3: And I think that is a, a worry and I think it's one that is should be uh, solvable, in my view.
0: Whitty would probably like the government to legislate because there isn't any legislation on the statute books as it stands. There isn't any. That would protect Whitty or anybody else from any future legal action because of the decisions they took with the government, right? So Whitty would like it, I would imagine most of them would like it, that this would be legislated for, and that in the future, those who are, how do you put this, those who are courted, those who are canvassed for their opinions, would be protected, no matter what they said. Right, huh?
2: I now want to turn to look, please, at the decision-making structures into which, of course, you contributed your to which you contributed your... I tell
0: you what, we know that Hugo Keats' wife or husband definitely doesn't suffer from insomnia,
2: right? Advice ...and the advice of Sage. Get on with it, man. Um, Jesus. It is obvious that those momentous decisions to impose lockdowns so stay-at-home orders backed by the force of law and
0: stay-at-home orders backed by the force of law in fact they were statutory instruments it's a different different thing entirely
2: decisions in relation to circuit breakers and tiers and rules of sex whatever they may have amounted to w- w-
0: circuit breakers and tiers and stay-at-home and you know tiered lockdowns all the things that maybe might my- leave witty and his pals wide open to litigation in the future. All these crazy bullshit decisions they were taking in 20 and 2021,
2: right? Decisions for government. They were not decisions for SAGE or for the CMO or the GCSA. So
0: he's testifying there now. Objection, councillor is testifying. And Hugo Keith has done this all day today. And he did it all day yesterday with Patrick Valance. He's testifying. You know what Hugo Keith is doing? He's testifying on behalf of witty He's saying, these are all decisions for the government. It's not your fault at all. It's not your responsibility. You know, it's not your... You don't bear any blame for any of this. You just gave your opinion. It was up to the government whether or not they took it or not. So what they're doing is whitewashing what happened in 2020. I said this at the outset of the announcement of the inquiry. I said it would be an outset. Right? Sorry, I said it would be a whitewash from the outset, that basically the whole thing would be an exercise in, in absolving themselves of any responsibility for ripping the heart and soul out of civil liberties that had been hard-won for centuries. That they would say, well, what wasn't us, gov. It was the government. And when Sunak and the other idiot, um, Johnson, when they eventually testify, it'll be more or less, well, Well, we follow the science, so don't blame us for ripping up civil liberties. So, so it's a buck-passing exercise here. And Hugo Keith is enabling this By testifying for him, this this is a matter for government, blah, 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 blah. You know, instead of asking him, you know, well, why wouldn't the government listen to you? You're the chief medical officer. How could the government, how could senior politicians say, well, piss off, Chris? You know, you're the chief medical officer. You're supposed to be the most senior doctor in the country. But Hugo Keith just testifies.
2: Rules of sex, whatever they may have amounted to. were were decisions for government. They were not decisions for SAGE or for the CMO or the GCSA.
0: This bastard is testifying. He's testifying. He should be asking him. On behalf of the, maybe millions if not millions, because people are bored by it, but on behalf of the many people watching this today, who was really running the show, Christopher? Was it you? Was it that idiot Hancock? That wet, I don't know, that used condom of a man? Wet Wet Hancock, Matt Hancock, was it? Was it Cummings? The idiot too who was advising Johnson? Or was it you and Valance, the very senior medical officer and scientist? But Keith is testifying. Yes. Does it- Whitty should say thanks, thanks for that Keith. Thanks for pointing out that ultimately none of this has got anything to do with me, I just gave an opinion. did
2: it follow that they are all ultimately political decisions? He continues to testify.
3: I think uh, they are all very clearly political decisions because they have very profound implications for society. Well, this
0: is bullshit. You are the country's chief medical officer. You were elected, not by the people, but you were chosen for that role. You advise government. The relationship is crystal clear. When the government needs to find out something, when it needs to know something about medicine, when it needs to know something about public health when it needs to make a decision on how to treat an incident or to treat something to do with public health, they go to you. So it's ridiculous to you know, extricate yourself from all of that and just paint yourself as some guy that gave some evidence and ultimately it was all up to them.
3: Well, no, it wasn't. They were depending on you. And uh, I, I think they are clearly ones that only a, an elected politician in a, within a democratic system at least can reasonably finally make we can give advice of a technical nature as to what would happen in this situation
2: or that one, but ultimately these are political decisions.
0: Twasn't me, Gov. Honest engine. Twasn't me. And
2: is that why do you think that these matters have become, of course, so divisive? Why this whole debate has become so politicised? And, and why so many commentators have taken such entrenched positions? Oh my
0: God. That's the guy supposed to be questioning Whitty on behalf of the British public. Whitty was there front and centre. He, he, he stood alongside Johnson and Hancock at more COVID briefings, at that specially built briefing room. than so you and I have had hot dinners in the last three years. They were there constantly. And they're painting a picture here that Whitty bears no responsibility for the decisions taken, even though Whitty's the most senior medical officer in the country. It is astounding.
3: I mean, I think, uh, yeah. I mean, in, in a sense, they are political, and therefore it is legitimate. They are open to political uh, debate. I think within that, uh, I, I had a there's a bit where I completely thought that the the, the debate was not only legitimate but healthy, and there was a bit which I thought was less healthy. Mm. The health, would it be helpful? For me yes. To no, that? please. Yeah. The healthy bit of the debate was, I think, it was quite right that. <coughs> Uh, in, for example, the balance between a public health intervention and uh, essentially, for the sake of argument, freedom to do what people want is had openly and within a democracy. I think that's quite right. The absolute
0: cheek of witty Witty did nothing to personally ensure that the debate was held in public about the measures taken, the lockdown measures that have done so much damage to people's lives, to their health and to their finances he did nothing to ensure while the bbc sky itn channel 4 were banning and they were banning we we've, we've seen this they've admitted it academics whose qualifications were as formidable or as as admirable as witty's qualifications but these scientists were saying don't lock down it's crazy those people were excluded from the debate and he did nothing to ensure that there was an open and transparent debate. So the irony. Look, we'll have one little bit more from Witty and then we'll play the most important clip. So here's Witty today saying that um, really there were no good outcomes no matter what they did. Listen.
2: In truth, were there ever any good or easy outcomes? So,
3: so there were two things I said right from the beginning and I you know, still don't think there's any reason to doubt them. The first of which is there were, there were no good options. All the options were very bad. Some were a bit worse and some were very, very bad. Uh, And the second is this was going to go on for a long time. So if you took an option, you had to be prepared to see it through for many months to years rather than just seeing this as a temporary situation. And I think, again, this took a while for some people to internalise that this was not going to be uh, in any way easy. It wasn't
0: going to be easy. It took people a long time to internalise. Maybe, Chris, it's because you have changed your mind more times than some of us change our underwear. This is witty. back in May 2020, explaining COVID as he understood it. To balance two things. The seriousness
3: of this virus as an epidemic.
0: May 2020.
3: And it clearly is a very serious epidemic. But equally, the fact that actually the great majority of people will not die from this. And I'll just repeat something I said right at the beginning, because I think it's worth reinforcing. Most people are, well, a significant proportion of people will not get this virus at all. Well, significant won't even get it at any point in the epidemic, which is going to go on for a long period of time.
0: Right. So the long period of time is consistent, right? But significant people won't get it. Significant number of people will not get it.
3: Of those who do, some of them will get the virus without even knowing it. They will have the virus with no symptoms at all, asymptomatic carriage. And we know that happens. Of those who get symptoms, the great majority, probably 80%, will have a mild or moderate disease. Might be bad enough for them to have to go to bed for a few days, not bad enough for them to have to go to the doctor. An unfortunate minority will have to go as far as hospital, but the majority of those will just need oxygen and will then leave hospital. And then a minority of those will end up having to go to severe uh, and critical care, and some of those sadly will die. But that's a minority. It's, it's 1% or possibly even less than 1% overall. And even in the highest risk group, uh, this is significantly less than 20%, I, the great majority of people, even the very highest groups, if they catch this virus, will not die. My to God,
0: two things. The great majority, even in the highest at risk groups, if they get the virus, they won't die. I said back in 2020, in May 2020, when he said this, I remember saying, is that what he had done there in describing COVID was he had taken a thimble, a thimble, you know what a thimble is? A thimble full of Robinson's orange squash, right? And he had put it into a 100-gallon tank and then he had filled up to the brim with water. That's what he had done. He had diluted COVID, with he, in May 2020. And remember, at this time as well, COVID had been downgraded as not a high-consequence infectious disease, Remember? Remember this, all of these lies that were told. So it had been downgraded as something that wasn't really that serious. Whitty went on television and said, COVID really isn't serious. And I made that stupid analogy of take a symbol full of Robinson's orange squash, chuck it into a 100-gallon tank, fill the rest with water, and that's COVID-19. And today, Whitty is saying there were no good outcomes, and we should have locked down earlier. We should have locked down earlier, he said. And there were no good outcomes. What do we do with people like... You know what the ancient Romans did? If I say it, I will be accused of inciting violence. And I am a man of peace. I do not uh, tolerate, and I will never tolerate violence. But you know what they did with their corrupted public officials back in ancient Rome, right? We don't do that. What do you do with people like that? Something happened to Witty. It's obvious, something... Now, my critics will say, or critics of this programme will say, well, maybe he changed his mind, Richard. Well, he didn't he couldn't have changed his mind because by may 2020 we were well into or even beyond the first so-called wave of covid infections and witty knew there was very little going on with covid in may 2020 it's 18 minutes past the hour it's all, it, it, it it's all, it's disgusting this and you know again we go back to when we when we criticize nations you know, when we criticise governments for doing bad things, like we spent years on this programme criticising the British government and the American governments for the crimes in the Middle East, you know, for the incursions and the millions of deaths and displacement and all of that. And we criticise Israel for its conduct in Gaza, I think quite justifiably. And you know, you think about these things and you think, well, who's really responsible for it? You know, the governments are the people who allow them away with it. Who's... um, Who's who, who's allowing witty away with his bullshit? Well, Hugo Keith is the King's counsel, the barrister, is letting him away with his bullshit because he must be aware of what went on in 2020. The media is completely ignoring it. That really interesting passage where Whitty talked about possibly being sued or thinking about being sued for some of the things, the, the, the wrongs they did, the civil liberties, the assault on people's rights and, and, and the harm it did in terms of public health because the overall public health harm when you when you look at the lockdowns far greater than any harm that could have been caused by covid so witty might well be a bit concerned about having to explain himself in a court of law someday or at least in a civil court 19 minutes past the hour it is it is so wretched the media isn't it and I, i know you're going to say well richie you've been banging that drum since since 2010 i have i have yeah wonderful The window cleaner says, these effing scumbags are all blaming each other now. Surprise, surprise. That's right. That's right, my friend. And this is what Carl Hennigan, the GP and Oxford academic, is is telling anybody who will listen. That they are not actually looking at the most important thing of all, which we talked about yesterday. If you choose to lock down a country... And all that goes with that, the other health impacts of that, finance and all the rest of it. Can you please demonstrate for me the evidence you use to justify doing that? And none of them have been or will be asked that question. This is a whitewash. I sound like a broken record because I am a broken record. Hugo Keith must not be able to sleep if he's got any sort of a soul in his body at all. He he must not be able to sleep for giving such an easy ride to Whitty and to Valance. Anyway. Gail says, Richie, these goons destroyed the mental health of the young, and I would say the majority of people, says Gail. Thank you, Gail. Um, Hi to Rich, who says, thank you, Rich. Nice to have you on for my drive home. That's right, the programme begins earlier. It's four o'clock to six o'clock UK time now. 21 minutes it is past the hour. Of five o'clock. I'm on Twitter, by the way, BBG Richie on Twitter. I don't read the tweets so much during the program. The reason for that is you've got a website to leave comments and you've got the app where you can leave comments as well. Do download the app, the App Store, and the Google Play. And I know when I did the Papers podcast this morning, because I am a plunker of the highest order, I did say five o'clock, didn't I? It's going to take me a while to get used to it. Five o'clock, you know. Wayne says, did I hear reference to Whitney's Herculean efforts? What Herculean efforts? To wreck people's physical and mental health and destroy the economy? And then he mentions, does Wayne, what I mentioned? Downgraded from a high-consequence infectious disease it was. Indeed it was. They knew in April, in May 2020, that COVID, just like the flu could be catastrophic for somebody with comorbidities. Every winter, several thousand people die of a flu-related illness. The flu, but they've got a comorbidity, so it means that maybe, you know, they might have lung issues, they might have a heart problem, they may have had a stroke, and all of a sudden they get this horrible old flu, because the flu can be absolutely shit, you know this, I know this, and that can tip them over the edge. That's right. Yes. Anto says, one of the symptoms of having COVID was having no symptoms. How the hell, says Anto, did they, the people, fall for this? Patrick says, thank you for your message, Patrick and everybody else. The whitewashing continues now. It's difficult not to feel angered by it all. I'm sure that if some of the normies get to know the real truth and the extent of it, Um, Some of the leading bastards, especially the senior cult operatives, will be lynched. They won't be lynched, Patrick. You know, if we're going to build... So Klaus Schwab and all those lunatics talk about building, you know, a great reset and building back better. I'd like to have a society, you know, where where liberty and civil liberties actually meant something. You know, and if you're going to build something new, a society where people, you know, are not oppressed by their government... You can't start off by lynching people, Patrick. It doesn't work. It's never worked. Capital punishment is a terrible, terrible thing. Let's not go down that road, please. I'm not pontificating here. At one time, I used to spend a lot of time corresponding with death row inmates in the United States primarily. So I know all about capital punishment. Elizabeth says at least the UK is having an inquiry as the Netherlands will start theirs in the middle of 2025 to make sure, says Elizabeth, that the uh, culprits will have long left the stage. Well, as you probably know, Elizabeth, they will continue to hear from witnesses here in the UK up until, at the very least, June of 2026. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Call me a sceptic, yeah. By that stage, you know, will anybody care? Will we be in climate lockdown then? Will we? I have no idea. I'm going to play a tune now, um, but before I do that, let me remind you that Mark Byerski who's a great friend of ours. Lovely man. um, The Pure Energy Healing Academy. He's much more besides. Check him out on YouTube, his YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com, look for Mark. He's always looking out for the independent media because ultimately, dearest listener... We don't get much advertising, you know, if any. Um, but, you know, NutraHealth365, by the way, NutraHealth365.com. Great people. Check out Eamon there. If you want to boost your immune system for the winter coming, NutraHealth365.com. We love Eamon and the gang there. But, um, yeah, so Mark's brilliant anyway. And in any case, he's, he's organising a raffle. So get on to com, his website, or go to YouTube.com and watch the videos there. And thanks very much to him, as usual. Really appreciate it. 25 minutes it is, past the hour of 6. Fleetwood Mac Zen. Come on, Fleetwood! Mick Fleetwood, that's the one. Thanks for uh, listening to The Richie Allen Show, by the way. Really appreciate it. I mentioned the papers earlier on, because it's relatively new. You may not be aware, but there is a podcast every weekday morning. And it's me looking at the papers and bringing you the best and the worst of the papers and it's not broadcast live it's recorded and it's usually online by about 9 a.m but these days it's been a bit earlier than usual anyway i can't remember the name of tango in the night that's right tango in the night's the album this is everywhere from fleetwood mag Music from Fleetwood Mac everywhere on the Richie Allen Show. 28 minutes it is past the hour of four o'clock. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you for your messages on the COVID inquiry. I'll get to those a bit later on. Uh, Steve Barry, one of the original presenters of the Top Gear show. Steve will be with us in an hour or two to talk about the demise of the programme. Freddie Flintoff, of course, uh, most famously a an England cricketer, um, had a bad accident, didn't he, while filming with Top Gear, and the BBC has decided to rest, that's a quote by the way, rest the programme, yeah, for the foreseeable future. And I'm, Asher, we're conspiratorial about everything, I, I think that we're, we're becoming a more risk-averse society, are we? A little bit more risk-averse, maybe, and uh, what happened if Freddie wasn't great, but I think Richard Hammond had a bad accident in Top Gear many years ago, And they carried on, you know. British, it's a British thing, isn't it? Carry on regardless. Anyway, we'll talk to Steve Berry about that a little bit later on. I'm really looking forward to uh, meeting our guest this hour. Now, she's a a dancer, an artist, and an entertainer. Do check out her website, deemingdreaming.com. I'll put links, of course, on the podcast notes a little bit later on. But she's also the parent and support group coordinator for the Scottish Union for Education. And we like the Scottish Union for Education because it's asking very serious questions about, well, trends in education in Scotland, which really have implications far beyond Scotland, right, in terms of imposing ideas on people, ideologies, which are never really debated. And Kate has written a brilliant piece for the Scottish Union for Education newsletter about a story about uh, something that happened at a nursery. And look, we'll just welcome Kate and we'll ask her to tell us the story herself. Kate, you're very welcome. How are you?
1: Hello, Richie. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. And just in case our listeners think, hang on a second now, he's talking to somebody from the Scottish Union for Education, but she sounds stateside to us. She sounds like she might be a little bit west of the Atlantic. You're originally from Philadelphia.
1: That's right. I've been here oh, 24 years now.
0: Can I ask you a quick question before we talk about the article? Um, oh, com- for sure. com- Completely nothing to do with it. Um, y- <laughs> you'll, you'll know more than I do. I've read somewhere before is that when somebody makes such a leap, because it's a major leap from the States to Europe, well, to Scotland, really, and when your accent is preserved, it's been said to me many times in the past, Kate, that this is a sign of some sort of self-confidence, and ability to blend in, an ability to be comfortable in your own skin anywhere. Do you go along with that? Because there isn't a trace of Glasgow in your accent.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, yes, of course, all those things you say about me are true. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's not so Philadelphia anymore, but it it's not stopped being North American for sure.
0: No, but we're not listening to train spotting either. When I when I when I'm hearing you. Really? So um, no,
1: no, definitely not.
0: This this is a very serious, but it's also a very polarized subject because you spend a little bit of time on social media as I do. It seems that you cannot talk about what it is that children are being exposed to or what children are being asked to entertain without getting into a big, massive row, which is terrible, right? So we don't, obviously, we don't do that here. You don't do that. But this is serious. Talk to us about the story that inspired the piece for the newsletter. So a a young girl is attending nursery. So
1: so, uh, I got a telephone call from a friend of mine who lives locally. Um, And she was upset because her daughter was upset because her daughter um, came home. And when she pressed her to see why she was upset, because normally she was quite content going to nursery, four-year-old girl, she said, the man-woman, the man-woman. And the mother was really concerned about this. So what had happened was a trans nursery worker had started um, employment at this local nursery and the little girl could see quite clearly this individual was male, but was being told that he, that this individual was female, and this caused great upset for her. Um, and so the mother, um, wanting to alleviate her child's distress, went to talk to the nursery and was told this person was hired as female and is female. Um, They then offered to speak privately with the little girl and to um, help her to accommodate this or help her to get more used to this concept, which the mother wasn't happy about because clearly she was concerned that that would undermine her instincts. And she also didn't want to encourage her child to lie. So whilst she was trying to figure this out, she's calling me because obviously she knows I'm involved with the Scottish Union for Education. And she also knows that I've been a very big advocate for children and childhood for a very long time. I've done a lot for children for the past decades. And so I was making lots of calls and trying to figure it out. Um, She went back to the nursery. And in the meantime, other mothers, she's a first generation Scottish woman. Her family's from Pakistan. She's fluent educated and you know fluent in English and Punjabi and Urdu Um, and the other mothers in the nursery who weren't so confident and not fluent in English went and started asking her if you know what was going on because they couldn't figure it out they were very also very confused about this but didn't have the language or the confidence to necessarily come forward with it and she just repeated what she knew right and so she went again to the nursery to say please don't put my, you know, for the time being, just keep my child separate from this individual till we figure out what we're doing. And they then said, we heard you've been organizing with other parents. This is harassment. We could call the police on you. This is causing this individual uh, much distress. Um, the m- My friend said, was quite upset about this, took her child out of nursery um, and uh, And, you know, and and since then, the individuals left the nursery, but I suppose it brings up quite important questions, Um, you know, as I wrote in my piece, you know, when the Gender Recognition Act, or not the Gender Recognition Act, when the Equality Act was first passed and they added gender reassignment into one of the protected characteristics. You can imagine that some of the people going through that thought, this is a small cohort of people, and they are very distressed about their bodies, and you know what, we're just going to give them this so they can live more comfortably. Um, Because we're a live and let live kind of society, right? And like, I'm not going to, you know, stop someone from being able to work. And this is not in any way a personal, I know nothing about this person, I'm not making any kind of judgment about them whatsoever. But I suppose they didn't think to themselves where basing a law on a lie the would line. lead, and that is the problem because what we have embedded into law is a lie, and that just not and hasn't led to anything good. You know, I wrote to Nicholas sturgeon about this in two thousand. <sighs> Sixteen, probably. 2000. I've written to her a lot. Actually, to so, be right. honest, did you ever get a response? None of it's been good. None of it's been good, Richie. I can imagine. Um, and um, and I said, I think you're going to create a problem for yourself, right? You're going to create a problem for those individuals who need support and specialist support, and you're going to create a problem for women. And now we can see for children as well. It's like I had a crystal ball, Richie. No, you were bang Should've on Kate. to me. You were, but, I was bang uh, on, I know, right? More how could they not see
0: How could they not see that this would present a problem when when it got to the stage where somebody within their rights, within their absolute rights, says, Well, no, I, I don't actually believe that you really are a woman. I mean, they must have foreseen there would be a problem there. You said yourself basing it on a lie is uh, it's it's basically a house of cards really isn't it it just takes one person in a company to say listen i don't mind mandy i don't mind working with mandy but you can't compel me to believe that mandy is actually a woman because i know mandy isn't i'm quite happy to refer to mandy as mandy but mandy isn't a woman mandy's a man and then you have a huge problem
1: yeah absolutely and we've seen we saw that with the prisons, with Isla Bryson. We saw yeah. that with the Andrew Miller case and Gala Shields, which I cited in the article and the, and the judge, you know, where the wee girl was picked up on the street and faced the most horrific sexual torment. And the judge said in the ruling, it is quite apparent, had she thought this person was female, she male, was male, she would not have gotten into the car. So, you know there there are implications by teaching children to go against their instincts, by teaching children to be nice, not particularly kind to create people to lie in their day to day. It doesn't mean we we don't have compassion. I think compassion is is really underrated, but being compassionate doesn't mean being complicit. And I think that's sometimes I think people go along with things just to make their own lives easier yeah, because they don't want to deal with it. And and I think that's what it comes down to. And then what you have in this is the situation in this nursery. Let,
0: let me ask you this, Kate, because I've tried to look into this. It's very difficult. But I do know two trans people um in Manchester mm-hmm. and both of them are in their 50s. So so I've asked them, right, like, was there a problem? And they said no, not really. And and this is why, like, it's very important. The article is excellent because it's very important to talk about gender reassignment being included in the Equality Act. That implies that previously there was an issue, and that you know transvestites mm-hmm. or trans people were, were 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 suffering some sort of discrimination in society. But I can't find any evidence they were.
1: Yeah, I can't speak to that particularly. Yeah. Um, but I, I you know I, I could believe it for sure. I think that we are actually quite a tolerant society, although sometimes the way people speak about things you were you'd think we were living in some alternate universe <laughs> um, I mean it, like it begs belief really, you know and so I think that, um, but, you know, you know, there you have said, you know, isn't by accident or design all these things that are seem to be coming up that create these divisions. And, and as, and I suppose, you know, there, I don't know, yeah, that, you know, that's where do you go from there well the most the most important thing
0: is i want to bring up your advocacy work because folks you're listening to kate deeming now kate does she wears many hats right she's an academic she's a uni graduate and she's got her own company does a lot of work around dance and theater and is working with the scottish union for education which is a real advocate for letting children be children and kate you've got your own lad and he's a preteen. So let's talk about this because this is really important because we could broaden this out just away from this issue. How childhoods have changed, Kate. Look, I know I'm forty eight and I know it's it's um forty years, I suppose. Yeah, jeez it is, since I was in a playground in primary school. But forty years in the grand scheme of things is not a lot in terms of time and my childhood was, particularly in school, it was a very blissful experience. We learned, we learned to read and write in English. We learned to read and write in the Irish language and we learned how to do arithmetic. And the rest of the time, Kate, was fun. And yeah, that was my absolutely. memory.
1: I think we, we, we seem to have. What I see happening in schools in particular is this kind of idea of making children into activists, the really adult concepts that we're bringing into schools. And what this is doing is it's stealing children of the very things that make childhood childhood, right? Yeah. I want anyone listening to think about your local community and think about, I can look at my own. We used to have four community centers. Now we have none. There are no local youth programs. There's no local football program. There's no, you know, there's there's nothing for kids locally. And it's something I certainly, I've campaigned for, for a long time. And I've done, I've funded programs and I've found money for programs locally in the tens of the thousands for kids. But it seems that when, Can the individuals in positions of power these days have an opportunity to do something for kids? They speak about children's rights and they talk about, um, you know, identities and and it's all these kind of really cerebral activities, academic activities. And as you said, like I'm an academic, I I love to write and I love to research, but at the same time, they're not actually investing in or conserving those things that are so precious for children to have. Like you said, that, that that actually is so important for building the foundation for their life, because if they don't have, there's plenty of time for them to be doing those adult things. There's plenty of time for them to be worrying about the, um, you know, my God, like, you know, the conflicts in the world. I saw, you know, if you consider in the past few years, we had, you know, like, I, I think I probably mentioned this to you before, like during COVID, um, we got sent home a Winnie the Witch book. right? And I love Winnie the Witch, like, it's brilliant. Yeah. And I didn't even think, I just opened it up and started reading it. And it was all about COVID safety, right? And I could see my child start to kind of get tense And I could feel myself get tense. And I just like I kind of got through and I put aside and I wrote a message to the head to the teacher. I said, do not talk to my child about these things anymore. That's my job. Right. I'll handle that. This needs out of schools. No, uh uh-uh right? You focus on the writing, the reading, but this didn't end there, right? Because then, then of course you had COP26 and then it was the end of the world message and parents taking their kids on these climate marches. And there are probably parents listening right now who think, well, yeah, I did that. It's important. But the thing is that, you know, there's, I I feel personally that there's a line that, you know, that we as parents are responsible to say, it's going to be okay it's going to be okay. And we need to let them believe that, right? Yeah. So that they can build up the resilience and have the fun and not worry about these, like, hugely complicated things. Do you think parents mean can't... well,
0: Kate? Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Do you think those parents mean well? It's funny you bring this up because I was watching Politics Live this afternoon on the BBC, and they were talking about children taking time off school to go on pro-Palestine marches. Now, everybody who knows this programme, they know that I've got a bit of sympathy with the Palestinian cause. However i completely disagree with children protesting for Palestine. it's It's crazy
1: i mean it's terrible listen i worked in the war zone during the war time in sri lanka i worked in north philadelphia in the gang lands which was essentially a war zone not one of those parents will thank you for exposing your children the horrors they have had not had the choice of not having their children exposed to don't you think In a heartbeat, if those parents in Sri Lanka, Palestine, you'd pick an area in the world, could take it back so their children would never be exposed and never know about that, they wouldn't snap it up in a minute. Like, you are not doing them any favors by doing this, and you're doing your children a massive disservice. And I can understand because I think in particular... You know, we not everybody has religion anymore. In the past, that created a moral framework that families could slot into, and it, it, and you know, and actually, is largely Christianity is largely the basis of the social justice movement. But the thing is, like, without with the absence of that, I do think that a lot of families feel that lack, and they think, well, I need to ch- um, teach my child some responsibility. I need to teach my child a sense of moral purpose, and so this is how I'm going to do it. Um, and I think also you see that in schools, right? But, because then you went from COP26, and then you have Ukraine, and then your Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's just one thing after the other and after the other about making children responsible for these it things. It must be making them out. anxious.
0: It must be causing anxiety in some children. I was and then. Yeah,
1: and then they say, like, why yeah. are uh, why are children having mental health problems? And then they put therapy in the classroom. I'm like, can you just Read a good book. You know, yeah. you think about all the wonderful um, examples that of stories that probably you had as child, and I had a child as as a child because I'm 50, so we're in the same generation, and the the books that we read that taught us so much about the world, right? Like getting getting really stuck into a good book. Yeah. As opposed to this narrow indoctrination, this narrow because it's not child led that's a total lie. Children can't leave children don't have enough experience in the world. You could say no, you want a hammer, a cheese sandwich, okay, well, then they're leaving. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know like, yeah, yeah
0: limits. they certainly can't process <laughs> images i mean i I've come across two pro pro-Palestine protests, one in Manchester, one in Salford, and some people were carrying some pretty awful images, and they were of yeah. of dead children, right. And I thought to myself, like, there were quite a lot of very young children there. And I remember as a kid being very traumatised by videos on the news of very emaciated children in Africa. And I was genuinely disturbed by this. You know, I used to think a lot about this. Because I wasn't old enough to process that at the time. And when these kids are seeing these things and hearing them... It it's it's definitely harming them. I've I've gotten into rows about this because people I know who are also you know kind of pro they take a pro Palestine stance. That's not that anybody justifies any violence. Violence is completely wrong, no matter who does it, Hamas or the IDF. That's my stance, and and I mean that. But um, kids can't process that stuff. They just can't, and they shouldn't be asked to process it.
1: No. Oh, and then in the same time, I could look at the families who've spent an enormous, locally, who spend an enormous, ordinary amount of resource in terms of organizing these child led. And I put that in brackets because it's not protests and organized all of this. And have they done anything like a local basketball club for the kids, Nothing. you know, to the uh, local party for the kids? Something just fun just for them to enjoy for the sake of it. Like, and that's because it's mundane, right? There's no virtue in that. There's no, is sometimes, it, I'll, I'll tell you, I've done so many projects, it's thankless, right? It's not thankless, it's joyous, right? But the thing is like, you know, I mean, there's, there's no money there, you know, you're you're doing these things, like it's hard graft, it's hard graft. You're not necessarily getting that euphoria from being part of the right crowd. Like you're, you're going, you're on your own. Um, propped up, you know, by, by the kids who are having the best time ever, you know, I used to run, I used to just pop into my local park and just, and just, and dress up like a lemon or a chicken or something like that and have discos. I got hundreds of kids showing up and they just want to dance and have a great time and the balloons and the bubbles and great. Amazing. Like, it's not difficult. No, not it isn't. At the- Heart is not actually difficult. Can I read a few
0: comments? Because this has um, this has motivated our listeners to, to get involved. Lots of comments coming in via the app and via the website. Um, great pleasure to have uh, Kate Deeming on uh, the show at the moment. I'll put links to where you can find Kate on the podcast a bit later on. She's on Twitter, by the way, to give her a follow there. But Sarah is a teaching assistant. She's a learning support assistant in a senior school. And she was in one of these PSHE lessons last week. And the lesson was dealing with uh, being tolerant with um, the sex and gender of others. Kids were shown short clips of transgender people. Several kids questioned it and refused to continue watching it and refused to complete tasks. I was having a little chuckle at this. this is Sarah, that's interesting because in her experience um, last week, one or two children said, no, I've had enough of this. That's positive, isn't it? I wonder how, how, how common this is where kids say, what the hell is this all about? I'm, I'm not having a, anything to do yes, with that, and I you think,
1: know? And I think it's a lie that this is a morally neutral stance, right? Like that this is left, you know, that they're they're teaching something that is like, there's like a baseline for that. And, and I think that, you know, it's up to the parents to be, and I think it's good, like you said, that children are starting to question this. I've heard more and more stories like that, but I also think it still is a very... Um, it's a very what's the word I'm looking for like tempting ideology in particular like I always said, I miss the days when all the weird kids did drama right like <laughs> yeah. you know like looking at self in the mirror <laughs> like in yeah. that drama club I was in it was like all the oddballs like we were all united not in our identities not you know there were definitely you know, um, some personalities in there. But the thing is, it was like making a project together, right? Yeah. And so um, I miss those days. And again, but again, that comes back to where is the funding for the k- things where kids can just come together and and have a common purpose yeah. and, and work towards something positive. You've said you know? something hugely
0: important there, by the way. Um, because on the one on the one hand, it's difficult to find fault with this because I mean, who doesn't want people to be kind to one another, right? But but there's a huge but there. I was neither popular nor unpopular at secondary school level, at high school level, right? I hung out with a couple of guys. We were a bit weird and did our own thing, and weren't really popular, as I said, or unpopular. But it didn't do us any harm. It did us no harm. You know, it made us kind of robust and it kind of gave us an understanding that, you know, you're not always going to be liked and you're not always going to be the flavour of the month. And that's OK. You're just going to have to learn how to deal with that. You know, there are lots of different opinions out there. And, and that's something that they might be taking away from kids. The ability to Absolutely. to take a it's bit of criticism. My- yeah.
1: My my mother said a really important piece of advice to me. Always listen to your mother. Uh, when my son was small, because I'm I'm a solo parent. So I've been on my own with him since I was pregnant. Um and so she said, you have to believe he can do it. So like that there was a there was a time that he was on the top of we were into the soft plate and there was this like this bulca- volcano thing, and he was standing on top and he got upset because he got to the top of the volcano and he got scared. And and I, and he was crying, he was sobbing, It was breaking my heart. And I was like, I just stood there at the bottom. I was like, you gotta figure it. I knew he could make his way yeah. down. I was like, you gotta do it, buddy. I'm gonna do it. Right. And after him, he did it. And the look on his face of having accomplished that and me not going, oh, you're right. You are weak. You yeah, are, you're yeah. not yeah. capable of that without mama. Now, comparatively, at my son's nursery, there was, you know, when I, when my son finally got nursery place, I literally like threw him in the room and I was like, you had to deal with it, buddy. Right. Because I had, it was the only time I had away from him to work and he was fine. He adjusted really quick and he loved nursery. Um, and, but there was a family there and they insisted their ch- child could, had to stop crying and had to be completely, she needed to decide when they went away right uh, this child developed into a right royal mess like a right room like i felt so bad for this child because what they were saying is no, actually you're not going to be okay you're not going to be okay like it was a huge pressure to put on to her at a young age as opposed to them just going you know what you're in a safe place and I always come back that's it right you know you're going to school you just have to deal with it you can deal with it you're going to deal with it right that's it that's part of life um, but I feel like nowadays it, we've lost kind of that sense, the common sense, when it comes to our kids, and, and 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 then consequently, like we have loads of problems of. I mean, my son's still in primary school, but you know, as I understand it, loads of problems of violence in high school and things like that. So, so it, I think it, it, you know, it's, it is so complicated and layered in ter- of what we've, what are we doing to our young people? you know yeah might um, be
0: yeah my my concern is that you're creating a, a kind of a gener- not not you of course but they're creating a generation of um people who will become young adults and then adults and they've been conditioned into thinking that they never have to face Criticism of themselves and 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 how they act, of their ideas, their ideologies, mm-hmm. the things they hold dear to themselves, that even these things are protected characteristics. Like your identity is protected, so your lived experience. In fact, your your friend and colleague Stuart Waiten, who uh, pops on the show with me from time to time, and he's always welcome. We talked about this one of the first times. You know that a kind of a conditioning. I'm not putting words in Stuart's mouth now, but along the lines of that programming, not kids to um their lived experience is certifiably um oh god that the lived experience is 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 right is correct it's the it's the answer and
1: and that that, and, that can't and that's be challenged yeah so dangerous because the thing is like we talk about yeah. you know this idea of child again child led or or a child knows themselves and like the thing is what you do is you solidify that experience for them when actually childhood and teenage years is a time of play it's a play of trying different things out like in terms of your personality your likes your dislikes all of a sudden you you firm for them you solidify and say that is what you are and there's no there's no get out there right there was a colleague of mine um has a trans child right and being in the arts, being a recovering artist, as I call myself sometimes, (laughs) because I'm just like a bit traumatized by my sector. And this child, this girl, you know, they made a big deal of her being a boy and then they put up a crowdfunder for her to have mastectomy to raise money for her mastectomy and everybody from my my quote unquote community was was absolutely oh you're so brave you're so stunning so wonderful we love you so much and like just love bombing her right and there's no Help. going back
0: from the mastectomy there's no there's going back from no
1: but there's no going back even from her, from her, how difficult will it be for her if she to come out of that identity, right? Yeah. If she has any niggles or doubts, any niggles or doubts, how does she come out of that? And we know from the cast report that affirmation is not a neutral act. Like this watch and wait, sometimes my child says something and I nod and I smile, right? That's what good parenting is like yeah. sometimes. Uh-huh, sure, okay, every say, right? And also like some and boundaries because that's the other thing. No, you absolutely cannot, you know, I mean, parenting is hard, is hard work. It's a crapshoot. You know, you're, you don't know, you know, I, I always say like, because I'm on my own with my son, it can be quite intense. And, you know, and he's the child I never imagined I would have had. Right. Like I love him more than life itself. He was an absolute gift from heaven, but like, it, you know, in terms of, I worked with children for decades before he was born. <laughs> and then right. I get one that I'm like, oh my God, I write a new manual now. What's yeah, that all about? Yeah.
4: <laughs> and on,
0: on b- b- because we've got about three, four minutes left, Kate, it's flown by. On the parents who've who whose daughter is having the mastectomy, do you think they've been left down, those parents? You know, have they themselves been left down by an absence of somebody to say, as we say, you know, in in Ireland, will you catch yourselves on? Don't allow this. You can't allow this. This is terribly wrong, you know. But but that but but that voice seems to be absent in this discussion these days.
1: Oh, completely. And in the arts sector, I mean, just, it's just not going to happen. Like the arts, the arts world in Scotland is is utterly lost in terms of as far as that goes. So all their circle of friends and all the people around them are all going to be validating that. So there's there's not really. It's like a cult. There's not much, there's not much hope for that. What no. I will say in terms of on the Scottish Union for Education front, though, is, is part of what I'm enjoying, and it is a positive move, is that I'm gathering with lots of groups of parents who are actively doing things about this in their communities and their schools and having conversations with their kids and are waking up and doing things about it. And so that's that's a positive thing. I can see even from a year ago there's a lot more activity in terms of and awareness in school environments. So, so, you know, all is not lost. But I think that the insidious nature of this has been going on for such a long time, it will take concerted effort from lots of parents to bring it back. So and, and, and really, I think it's the whole thing. We need to preserve childhood. I mean, we need to ask our schools, our communities, what are you actually doing for children? You know, that's fun. That's just for fun's sake, right? It's not about making your child to the next yeah. Greta Thunberg or whatever. Yeah. Like, what are you actually doing? Um, because these things are really hard to find. And that's ridiculous. We were it's taken ridiculous. outside, Kate.
0: I went to St. Saviour's Primary School in Waterford City. <laughs> In 1979, I I, I arrived in there, 1980, we were taken outside for lessons a lot of the time. Once you got to spring, we were constantly thrown onto a coach, onto a bus, thrown on and driven to one of the many seasides, one of the many beaches locally. Mm -hmm. This is how it was. And the standard of education was very good. I mean, it was. The teachers were excellent. You know, it was great English, great Irish, great mathematical uh, teaching. No history. History was exclusively for high school. We just learned how to write, read and speak and get on with, with each other. So, yeah, yeah. but can I just ask you this before we do run out of time? Um, so at the adult level, there's a bit of pushback. We saw some interesting news today. The Cricket Authority, the ICC, has declared that, look, no, um, men will not be allowed to play cricket with women. That's a good thing, right? And there was also a story yeah, where absolutely. where a bunch of women playing in a league in Sheffield um said enough's enough because one of the teams featured a man and I don't say this to be unkind or inconsiderate, because it is a man, a man who was playing and he'd injured um one of the female players because he's much stronger. And this is amateur soccer, right? I mean, I wouldn't fancy playing against some of the uh, uh, professional female players. They're unbelievable. I was watching um, uh, United and City at the weekend, right? they would make you look foolish. But this is amateur soccer. So you have a woman who gets seriously injured by by a bloke and uh, a lot of the girls have said, we're not playing anymore. So this is positive anyway.
1: Absolutely, I think I say I think more and more people are aware of it, and I think there is more pushback. But I think the fact that it's so embedded into our institutions and our governments that that's going to take a long time to draw out the poison that's there, and so we just have to keep challenging these um, authorities in in our environments to to do things that are positive. For children, in particular, um, and so you know that that's the only way, and and to be relentless, and to talk about it, and not to lie. It's not being unkind to tell the truth. You know, we need to get over that kind of politeness. It's not me being unkind. You wouldn't say to an anorexic, "Yes, you are really fat." Yeah, actually, I'm quite fat. Yeah, no, you were <laughs> absolutely right. Here are some diuretics. You know, like so. I think also there needs to be an element of taking back language and just, and in particular for children, that you, you, we do not embed lies into our classrooms. We do not embed lies into our nurseries and it's absolutely not acceptable for that to be there.
0: Kate, we'll, we'll leave it for today. That's a great way to end it, but I'd like to broaden it out in the future and talk about the state of education for younger children today and the solutions around that, because a lot of parents listening to this, if you go to the comments on our website, even the comments coming into the app, lots of comments coming in from parents who are looking for solutions to this. So we we might broaden that out again in the future. But uh, thanks for your time today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so So, much. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Uh, That was Kate Deeming. Uh, Kate is an academic. Uh, She's also an artist, dancer, and entertainer. And these days, she's working with the Scottish Union for Education as the Parent and Supporters Group Coordinator. Now, the Scottish Union for Education Substack is quite simply Scottish Union for Education. Substack.com. You'll see Kate's uh, report on the the nursery story she told us at the beginning with the kid and the trans nursery teacher. So check that out. And Kate's own website is DeemingDreaming.com. Do check it out. As I said earlier, I'll put links on the podcast notes later on to to, to, uh, to those websites. We'll so do that a bit later on. Coming up for two and a half minutes now past the hour of 5 o'clock. Yes, I'm still getting used to it. Yes, so I am. Uh, This is the Richie Allen Show. Your comments in a moment. And then in a few minutes time, Steve Berry will join us. Steve, one of the original presenters for Top Gear, a very accomplished TV radio broadcaster and, uh, and journalist. Yes, for the Times and magazines. and He does a lot of radio for the BBC as well. So we'll chat to him about that. And that's an interesting story, actually. The BBC discontinuing the Top Gear programme.
1: Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk
0: Now, Anthony makes a very good point. Look at sports day in school now. There's no first, second or third place. Everybody is just told it's about taking part and everybody is the winner. What does this teach, asks Anthony. That's a great point, Anthony. I'd like to find out from our listeners. Because, Anthony, I know this goes on, so I'm certainly not in any way contradicting you. I know it goes on, mate. But is it happening everywhere? School sports days, where they don't award, you know, a gold-plated and silver-plated medal? Because that's worrying. If it's going on everywhere... Like I said, I went to St. Saviour's, and I took part in the sports day every year for six years. What did you win, Richie? On my very final sports day. When I was in sixth form, although we say sixth standard back then. Sixth form, right? So I was just twelve, I was hitting twelve. I got a silver medal in the sprint in sixth form. Prior to that, I got nothing. I even cheated cheated cheated. I even cheated in the potato and spoon race. We didn't do an egg and spoon race. We had a potato on the on the spoon. <laughs> Don't ask me why. But we had a potato, and you could cheat. You see, you could stick the spoon into the bottom of the potato if the spoon was sharp enough, and then run. I even tried to do that, and I still didn't uh, get a medal. But I got one medal, a silver medal, because I was getting tall and fast. Then you see, I had a spurt, didn't I? So I had an advantage. I had an advantage. I Had white privilege. I did. I had lanky privilege. That's what I had. Thank you for that, Anthony. Um, Tracy says, Hi, Tracy. Richie, you have to watch, she says, Left Behind, Rise of the Antichrist. It's on Amazon, says Tracy. I swear, it's like a play on everything over the last few years and what is coming. One World Government, um, Cashless, Great Reset, Israel, the UN, online censoring, and all of that, says Tracy. Thanks, Tracy. I do have Amazon Prime, We do, and I haven't come across it. It's called Left Behind, Rise of the Antichrist. Thank you for the tip, Tracy. Maria says, Richie, my brother's daughter is now in nursery. She is just over two. The parents had to take a week off to settle her in. (laughs) Unbelievable. It's an exclusive, i.e. expensive nursery with only 14 kids. I fear for her in the real world. That takes me back because I went to nursery when I was three in Ballybeg. It was in a prefabricated building or a prefab and there was a lot of shaking those musical, those those, um, percussion instruments and playing the triangle. That's pretty much what we did I learned how to sing nursery rhymes. Yeah, and then we were picked up and brought home at the end of the day before going into big school. That was all the rage when you were three. I'm going to big school next year. I'm going to big school. And then you go into infants, and you start all over again. Remember, God be with the days. All we did was go on school tours to Bunratty Castle, you know, to Yall. Uh, uh, We would go to Cashel in Tipperary. We would go to Wicklow on a bus for the day. Fantastic. It's what we did. Probably once every two or three months, we were going somewhere. And it was so simple. It was blissful. You know, I've mentioned once or twice before, I didn't have an idyllic childhood far from it. Certainly not at home. But school was great. You know, it's like, a lot of sports, a lot of arts and crafts, and then Gwélge, Gwélge, and then Baerle Béirle, bearle is English, bearle. Out comes your books, out comes your copy books, and off you go. And then at the end of that, then, right, that's it now, get your aprons on, get your, we didn't have easels, we didn't have easels, we just basically had big, great big sheets of paper, and these kind of, you know, these kind of like washing up liquid bottles full of paint. <laughs> we just just go nuts. Sink Kindergarten Cop with Arnold Schwarzenegger and times that by a thousand. Just went nuts. It, it, it was wonderful, really. Elizabeth says, great discussion. I think kids should not have access to any phones, tablets, computers in class, except for a dedicated separate computer science class. That's interesting. And some schools have adopted that thinking. Elizabeth, some schools have declared that mobile phones must be kept outside of the classroom, yeah. But they're integrating mobile phones into classrooms and stuff, aren't they? You know? Craig reckons, trans activism has all the hallmarks of a religion. Religion that is targeting women, children and homosexuals. And I think what he means by homosexuals, because I've heard this from a gay man I know. I know a gay man. A very, very gay man. And he's a good man. And he said, you know, with some young kids, it's almost like he said to me, they're they're giving a get-out-of-jail card to some young gay men who, for whatever reason, you know, are not coming to terms with their sexuality. This gives them a get-out-of-jail card, doesn't it? Well, the reason you're not coming to terms with your sexuality is, Paul, because you're not actually gay, Paul. You're actually a woman. (laughs) And this is why you fancy Michael. No, no, he, he's not, he's not, he's not a woman. Paul is actually a man and he's gay and there's no problem with that. But yeah, I've, I've I've read this before and I've heard this before too. Interesting that, isn't it? Faisal says, I used to be totally against capital punishment under all circumstances. I now have one exception. If the public decide by referendum is that a particular case warrants it due to exceptional circumstances, i.e. ongoing danger to the public if left alive. That's interesting. Imagine a referendum over somebody's punishment. So somebody does something and we're given a referendum. I don't know what the choices would be. Life without parole. Life with parole. The death, the death penalty. Those are your three options. Imagine it. I had a row with a, with a lecturer surprise, surprise, in, in Salford years ago. Lovely woman in fact. woman called Mary Rouse. Lovely woman at a row with her, over, um, we talked about TV, and she said, we'll never see Live Aid again. We'll never see the likes of it. So many people sitting down watching the same programme. Everybody in the country. And I, foolishly, because I'm a big mouse, I said, well, if they executed somebody really, really famous and put it on the box, you know, okay, kids obviously wouldn't watch it the way kids watched Live Aid. You know? Um, kids wouldn't watch it the way they watched Live Aid, but, but still most adults would probably Be compelled to watch even through their fingers, maybe. I don't know. Ten minutes past the hour, it's the Richie Allen show. With me, Richie Allen, here is Erasure. Erasure. Back in a moment, Steve Berry joins us. Can't wait. Yeah, I nearly got caught short there, having a glass of water, so I was. Uh, coming up for 13 and a half minutes past the hour. I'll get Steve on now for a chat. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, before we do, though, let me read you this from the BBC News website. It goes as follows. Uh, the BBC's flagship show Top Gear will not return for the foreseeable future after presenter Andrew Freddie Flintoff was hurt in a crash while filming last year. In a statement, the BBC said it has decided to rest the UK show. To rest the show. Uh, the presenter was injured in December at Top Gear's Test Track at Dunsfold Park Aerodrome in Surrey. They subsequently halted it. The rest of the series and the BBC apologised to the former England cricketer. We're joined this hour. and delighted to be joined by him, an incredibly experienced uh, television and radio presenter and journalist um, and one of the original presenters of Top Gear. He was there for many years in the 1990s. He presented the Top Gear radio show. He's worked for BBC Radio 5 Live for TalkSport. He's written for the Sunday Times. He's done bloody well everything. Let's welcome Steve Berry to our radio show.
5: <laughs> How are you, Steve? Are you Are you well? Yeah, I'm not bad, mate. I'm uh, I'm actually speaking to you from one of Motorsport's most hallowed sites, Goodwood, where they have the Goodwood Festival and the Goodwood revival and all that sort of stuff so what's on yeah, steve is there something is.
0: on is, yeah you, you i know you're busy you're incredibly busy i know you've got the fab radio show but you're doing lots of other things beside which we can talk about what are you doing down there is there an event on this week
5: there isn't there's usually something on down here but i'm um i've been on a bit of a bit of a tour at the moment i was a, i was in shrewsbury jail on saturday which was the site of a Fantastic custom motorcycle show. It was a great place to have a, to have a motorbike show. And I said to the organiser, has anybody confessed to having been here at Her Majesty's pleasure? And he said, oh, we've had four or five blokes saying, I can't believe I'm paying for a ticket to come into somewhere.
0: Is that right?
5: <laughs> we've previously spent three to five.
0: <laughs> wow. Steve, I'm getting it. I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know if i can just jump in i wouldn't be i'd be embarrassed now saying this to a vastly experienced broadcaster like yourself but i wonder are you very close to your handset because i'm getting a bit of uh distortion there i wonder are...
5: oh right i might be mate how's that i'm a bit further away now yeah
0: even a little bit more might work yeah you've got that um you've got that yeah, incredible holding
5: the uh the microphone up close to my face is that any better for oh, you? oh it's a thousand
0: times better thanks for that steve Brilliant. Yeah, it's 100 oh, times better. Thanks for that, buddy. Um, so you're up to your eyes then. That's that's good news. Um, let, let's talk about Top Gear then. Um, so they've decided to rest it, strange way to put it, for the foreseeable future, after what happened to Freddie. Um, you played such a huge part in the show. It's obviously something you're very proud of. What do you make of that decision to, to to basically put it on hiatus now? Well, I think it was time, wasn't it? I mean, the
5: the, the programme I think we can compare it to at this time is Doctor Who. And for many of the fans of Doctor Who, which of course is seemingly in the news every day right now because of the new revival and the new Doctor and all these spin-offs and everything that's being done with it, and the fact that Davros is now running around. <laughs> it's, it's, Dav, to me, Davros is in his, in his Dalek outfit. What's going on? But... People would forget, young viewers would forget, Doctor Who was missing for 16 years. And a lot of people thought it was never coming back. I sold a motorbike recently to a bloke who had a Dalek because he bought it when the BBC sold everything off for next to nothing. And apparently it's worth a fortune now because it's a real one. An original. Top Gear will go away for, I reckon, a minimum of four or five years and then it'll come back a very different show because the nature of motoring has changed and the nature of the bbc is fast changing as well my friend
0: explain what do you mean the nature of motoring has changed
5: i recently spoke to a guy called steve kitson who i met 25 years ago when i tested the first kia car to come into the uk and he said as the one of the first employees of Kia, he said, I sat at home with my head in my hands as you dismantled it on top gear on a Thursday night in front of 7 million people. And as I said to him, but Steve, it was a terrible car. And he said, you're right, it was a terrible car, but that was 25 years ago. Richie, back in the day, there used to be bad cars. And it was our job to point them out to the public because that's the sort of thing the BBC used to do. The BBC doesn't do that sort of thing anymore. It doesn't do the clothes show because it doesn't tell people about what to wear. It doesn't do the holiday programme because it doesn't tell people to go on holiday. And for a long time, it's not really done top gear. I was there for in total about 10 years, although. Not necessarily on the main program, was doing other stuff for the BBC as well. And back then, we were, it was journalism. We would say there are five affordable family hatchbacks out there for less than £15,000. We will rank them and tell you which is the best one. Now, the problem with that is that it's not in any way, shape, or form advertiser friendly. And the BBC is moving towards a model where it's thinking – well, it's not thinking. It knows it's going to have to pay for itself through advertising. Tomorrow I'm going to Canada. When I get there, if I log on to the BBC, before I'm allowed to look at their content, it will show me an advert. No way. That advert, advert, 50% of the time, is for a car. Now, when I left Top Gear, I went and worked for ITV and I worked for Sky and we did motoring programs, or rather, we tried to do motoring programs, but it was really hard because every single comment and every single remark had to be checked. Because if you look at the biggest advertisers in the world of broadcasting and the media, you know this, Richie, in the top 20, there's probably five or six car manufacturers in the top 20 of everything, everything, everything we eat, everything we wear, everything we consume, It'll they'll probably be Volkswagen, Toyota, Ford, Stellantis. It'll be the big car manufacturers. And they are incredibly funny about what you might say or what you might. There's not really motoring journalism anymore, mate. It doesn't really exist. There no, are car magazines. This but is really just important Steve. The flag and go, Aren't cars great? Aren't they all wonderful? Back in the day, there used to be genuine criticism. And genuine fault finding, but cars are really, really good now. There's very little to find fault with, and the advertising department won't let anyone in commercial broadcasting criticise the product.
0: Because Top Gear, I I only began watching it when I first arrived in the UK in the mid in the mid. 2000s, I suppose. I didn't see much of it right. when I was in Ireland. So it's brilliant what you're saying, because it takes me back. Yeah, it was public service broadcasting. People hung on every what? word of it, because it's a life changing decision to spend ten, twelve, thirteen thousand 13,000 pounds on a car. And you want to hear what Steve Berry and the other members of the team have to say about this car. And you were given free reign to give a genuine, honest appraisal of what the car Absolutely. could do. Yeah, yeah, and that doesn't happen. Now, now, it's a, now it's a kind of a muscle car type show where the guys are doing silly stunts and silly tasks. We're driving to Timbuktu and see who can get there in the stupidest car and that sort of thing, right? When did it happen? Yeah. When did it change from public service broadcasting to this programme that was something completely different, Steve? Well, not necessarily when
5: the three, when Clarkson, Hammond and I. Um, brought out their automotive version of Last of the Summer Wine, which is what it actually was. <laughs> Very <laughs> simple shows in many ways. Don't ask me which one's Compo, Foggy and Clegg. although I could tell you. Yeah. Um, Hammond was Compo, Clarkson was clearly, fo- uh, James May was clearly Foggy and Cla- Clarkson was the other guy. But it started to change to a more of an entertainment show in the 90s. I mean, I was quite surprised. They said that in the last run, it was getting 4.5 million viewers on on the BBC Top Gear with Flintoff, Harris and uh, uh, the little Peter K, Paddy McGuinness. That's but, very good, uh, little Peter K. I love that. That's very good, that. In... Well, yeah, well, anyway. Um, <laughs> back in the day, we were getting 7 million on BBC2, but back in the day there weren't as many channels. There wasn't no YouTube. Netflix. There wasn't yeah. all, all that, that other stuff. Yeah. But we started doing wacky challenge type stuff. I mean, back in the day, I did the wall of death. I did a evil Knievel ramp jump over a, uh, from 20 foot high ramps, riding a motorbike off the end of a ramp at 45 mile an hour to clear a load of trucks and all that sort of stuff. You know, I did stuff like that. I drove the beast a 27 liter Merlin engined car, you know, and we, we, we made it wackier and we made it edgier and stuff like that, but we still had that solid journalism, you know, doing articles about dodgy child seats that were being offered for sale and all that. Like you said, Richie, public service broadcasting, but it it changed slowly. But make no mistake, James, Richard, and Jeremy were all working motoring journalists before they were the sort of That's mega right. TV stars. That they became and they've all continued to work as motoring journalists you know jeremy writes about cars every single week in the sunday times so those guys knew what they were talking about mate because they've been at it for years and years and years yeah like them i've driven i've literally i mean we were talking about this today how many cars would the average person drive in their motoring career well what's the well career
0: now hang on now you say career so i'm i'm not a motoring journalist right so i'm just a i'm a bog standard bloke so what what is the answer and how the, many cars Go, uh, i'm gonna i'm going i'm speaking to a legend of motoring journalism so i'm just going humiliate, to humiliate myself why not first car purple ford fiesta second car <laughs> second car was a bmw 525i um automatic third car oh my God, what a car i know
5: which which, which one was it the 90, e28 or the
0: e34 i don't know 97 was the year and i drove 97 effect. that'd
5: be an e34 what a car it was that lovely. 525
0: yeah it was fantastic my next car then was given to me as a present and it was a mercedes s500 uh weighed about two ton five liter v8 engine I drove that in Spain.
5: Who gave you that as a present? I want to meet them. um and so, that's 500. Yeah. Wow. Well, well, <laughs> well, well. it
0: was ancient and he was very wealthy and he didn't need it. And at the time, they were only going for a couple of thousand pounds anyway in dealerships. Right. So he gave me one of those, but I had to leave that in Spain. And then I ended up driving a Renault McGann um, estate and now um what am i driving now i'm driving an old an older not old but not certainly not a new model i don't want people thinking i've got money but um um an e-class estate mercedes these days yeah so i don't know how many that is six yeah. six and i'm 48 now
5: yeah yeah well modern journalism is different i mean there's a, I, there's a regular event held for journalists at a test track in the middle of england and I went there one day and I drove 21 cars on the same day, <laughs> one after the other. And it, so, cause What I'm constantly looking for, what you're constantly looking for as a journalist in whatever area you operate in, you're looking for new benchmarks, new benchmarks of quality or lack of quality, the best handling car, the best, the fastest accelerating car, the quietest car, the noisiest car. You're looking for those benchmarks. So that you can make proper comparisons. But what's happened? Somebody published a poster recently and it was 30 different cars from manufacturers and it was a side on profile. And somebody said, Can anybody identify more than three or four of these cars? Richie, they all look the same. Because guess what? The more car designers become down to computers rather than people, the more the cars have looked the same because there is obviously an optimum size and shape for a motor car. So the days when a Citroën CX, a Jag, and a BMW 5 Series looked utterly different to each other has gone. Yeah, it has. These days, tell the difference between a Ford, a Volkswagen, a Toyota, a Nissan, a Kia. You know, like I said, I was saying to you, that guy, he was devastated when when I dismantled the first Kia, the Sportage that came. There was the pride in the Sportage. And, it, of the cars and you the ripped
0: his soul out with your review, yeah. <laughs>
5: yeah, It was the thing. He said to me, Steve, I'm sending you the latest e Nero, their latest electric car. I had that car for a month, 25 years later, and it was fantastic. As good as any car made in Europe or Japan. An electric car 25 was... years
0: ago, and you're saying it was the dog's...
5: electric car now he said because he called me and he said i want 25 years on this guy said i'm quitting the industry i'm retiring but i want to send you our newest car so that you can see how far we've come in this time and let me know what you think and i did a piece about it and 25 years on they had caught up from from so what i'm saying is the days when you had like a yugo or a skoda or a Proton or something like that. Yeah. And it was a shocker of a car, a gone. And people said to me, oh, I'm a bit nervous about it. I said, they're all the same. They're all the same. Do it on price and how far away the dealership is from your house so that when it needs a service in, it's convenient for you Steve Berry is there on. Steve
0: do I, I want I don't know how much Paul told you but let me let me just do proper housekeeping here you're listening to Steve Berry folks Steve's done it all in television radio and in print he's a motoring journalist extraordinaire. he's been all over the world uh, he's driven everything that was ever built to drive now, I don't know what Paul told you. I know you know very little about this programme, so it was very kind of you to come on, knowing very little about it. But we like the, conspira- we like the conspiratorial angle on this show. So I'm going to go all conspiracy theorist on you. Okay, I, I, have you a, go. I have a feeling that one of the reasons the BBC decided to end it, now you might be right that, you know, everything changes and it has to be shelved for a bit. But I think as a society, we're becoming very risk averse And I think that might have something to do with it. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. What do you say to that?
5: We are. But I had a massive accident when I was a Top Gear presenter. I'll tell you another thing as well, Richie. I served a six-month driving ban while I was a Top Gear presenter. How? Go and ask me how I did that. (laughs) How How did you do that? I'll tell you. Back in the day, if you got banned in the UK, which I did for speeding, not for drink driving or dangerous driving, for speeding, pure speeding, topping up on my license, I got a six month ban. You could, what you could do back then, this would have been late nineties. You could get something called an IDP, an international driver's permit from the AA or the RAC. Remember when they had offices on the high street, you could go into the AA office and get an IDP and it looked really official. Because a British driving license was, a, I mean, you, probably Irish driving license, but I don't know if it was the same as a British one. Uniquely, it didn't have a photograph. So my first forays abroad were a nightmare. When you got your green British driving license out and showed it to the Guardia Seville or the carabinieri or whoever it was, they'd look at it, looking for the picture, and then they'd start shouting at you because <laughs> they'd be like, this isn't a driving license. <laughs> All driving licenses have a photograph of the driver. And I lived like, in Spain for years. Brit- yeah. Of course they do now, but this was back in the day. But like I said, I I would appear on the programme and Quentin was always, Quentin Wilson, two L's as we called him because it was Wilson with two L's. And I still know Quentin, good lad. But he would always do the, the introductory menu for the programme. He'd say, tonight on Top Gear, I'm telling you about the latest value in used hatchbacks. Jeremy's driving the new turbo Subaru. And Steve Berry is in Japan, Korea, Germany, Holland, Italy, Spain. I went all over the world, mate. It was one of the best things that's ever happened to me Amazing. because I could drive abroad. And that was the sort of pragmatic attitude that they had. I put a Lotus upside down in a ditch just outside Ormskirk in Lancashire. I nearly knew. killed myself and the cameraman. And that story did not appear in the national press. And the reason it didn't is because they did a deal for another story about somebody else at the BBC and kept my story out of the papers. So the
0: BBC traded Steve Berry for somebody else. I love this. So we'll keep the Steve Berry <laughs> turning the Lotus upside down story. We'll keep that quiet. And, and in return for you keeping it quiet, here's a bit of dirt on, I don't know, Noel Edmonds. There,
4: there you go.
5: <laughs> it was a female star of the BBC's, who was in the BBC's employ. And it's so long ago now, I'll tell you what the story involved. The story involved a getting up on a table at a boozy awards ceremony in London and dancing, but then crashing down and ended up with a stalk of a wine glass inserted where you really wouldn't want to have the stalk of a <laughs> wine glass inserted unless you took particularly perverse pleasure in that sort of thing. And they traded that true story for the true stuff because people didn't know about that. And they basically, the guy who was charged, Then the the BBC used to have a guy, I'm not going to name him, but they used to have a guy who was poacher-turned-gamekeeper. And after my accident, I was introduced to this guy, and he coached me through the whole process of keeping it out of the papers. And they did. They even kept my driving ban out of the papers. And I can't believe that somebody didn't work out that I was abroad every bloody week. And work it out, they were like, why is Steve Berry always somewhere abroad? Somewhere abroad yeah. I was a bit like, do you remember the Thunderbird who was up in space? Was yeah. it Alan? The yeah, he was always it. in. They were always by the pool having a martini. And then he was up there in the orbiting station. I was like him. I was never with the others. Because I, I driving
0: and, and I say this, um, not, like covering stuff up. We, we know the BBC has a history of covering stuff up far more serious than... Than you being um, you know a bit silly in in a, in a lotus, but but I want to stay a little bit um, conspiratorial with you if if you don't mind for a few minutes while we still have you. I know you're you're in demand this evening. Steve Berry is our guest. Um, do you fear for the future of the car? Look, um, we cover what I do, Steve. Is on this show is I try to give the other side of every of every discussion and. Wherever I can, put credible people on credible academics. Why so will have featured people, eminent scientists who do not believe that the climate emergency is really an emergency? Right, that there's a lot of natural yeah. stuff going on. Now, we look yeah. at some of the things being proposed to deal with the so called climate crisis. And a lot of it is very, I would say, very totalitarian, you know, life changing stuff. Let's completely turn life on its head. Let's take, you know, the things that we take for granted, let's take them away from people. Do you worry about yes. driving? I worry about, I worry that the Absolutely, time is coming. Mate. I do, mate. Go on. Yeah. H- how seriously do you take it? I'm from,
5: I'm from, I'm from Be- what? like, when I arrived at Top Gear in 91, I first crossed there. Uh, threshold and I realised quickly that despite the fact that only five percent of British men are privately educated I was the only person who hadn't been to a paid school. I'm a grammar school boy from Berry. I grew up in a Coronation Street two up two downtown two up two down house uh, with a tiny little garden at the front and cobblestones outside and we didn't own a motor car until I was 10 years old. You know what my dad had till then he had a chicken chaser a honda cub the world's most prolific internal combustion engine vehicle <laughs> 76 million people cannot be wrong honda 50 76 no? million 50. The honda 50 yeah the plastic maggot the chicken chaser that's what my dad had to go to work on yeah. we got when i was 10 a mini clubman estate and we used to get the seat the sofa cushions And we used to sit because there were four kids, two in the front, mum and dad in the front, two in the back, and the two little ones in the boots sat on sofa cushions. The motor car was one of the greatest things that happened to ordinary people. Liberating. It widened people's horizons so much. Do you know where we used to go on holiday? Like everybody else that I knew used to go to Blackpool. We were from Bury. Everybody used to go to Blackpool. If you're a little bit posher, maybe Southport. We used to go to Torquay and Newquay. We used to get in our little modest mini, and we all used to set off on a massive adventure. Because on that street, Richie, where I grew up, where I subsequently bought the house next door is my first house when I got married and had kids, when I was a kid, there were three cars. And I can remember the cars, and I can tell you, Adam, There was a purple ford escort that belonged to jerry and sheila there was mr harrison's orange maxi and there's our next door neighbor's blue two-door escort estate because they had two-door estates back then there were three cars on the whole street when i lived there there was a little bit of pressure which would have been you know when i bought my house there which would have been 30 years after i was born and lived on that street there was a bit of pressure on parking you go back now you can't move for cars because everybody's got a car but for some reason they want to tell us that that's a bad thing the car made such a difference in people's lives ordinary people's lives it's like today there's an article in the papers rowan atkinson going on about how electric cars are terrible and we should all hang on to our petrol cars and this that and the other petrol cars internal combustion is a 19th century technology 19th century right it got berry's twin town was the home of gottlieb daimler one of the pioneers of internal combustion when i used to go to the baths in berry they had a display cabinet with a lot of stuff about daimler in there. And i used to read it i used to think oh look at this daimler oh wow he's one of the people that invented the car and that's our twin town in germany oh how interesting and I used to think when I sort of moved on and became a morning journalist, I thought, I'd sometimes go to the bass, do a few lengths. And I thought, if I brought Gottlieb Daimler to the late 20th century, would be appalled at how little progress we've made. We're still using his bloody invention a hundred years later. It's now 125 years later, and people are wanting to hang on to this ancient technology. And here's the problem as well. Oil has enriched some of the worst people that have ever lived. Think about the people that have made money from oil. It's some of the worst people that this planet have ever produced. So quite why we want to hang on to it, I have no idea.
0: Infrastructure, though. Um, Look,
5: we've said... There was no infrastructure when the internal combustion engine was invented. The infrastructure comes after the invention. Supply follows demand. They didn't put petrol stations in before there was a demand for petrol. Pioneer motorists had to go to Boots the Chemist and buy petroleum distillate in gallon cans because it was used for dry cleaning curtains, right? As soon as the motorcar became popular, petrol stations popped up. As soon as electric cars become more popular, more charging stations will appear.
0: Here's the question from Isabel. This is good. Um if you've got time Richie can you ask Steve what he thinks about cuz you're on the subject the future of electric cars you've just basically said it especially about the longevity of the
5: batteries
0: also ask him the future
5: me- of electric cars right I'll, I'll answer that okay at the start of internal combustion a lot of the technology which became standard very quickly didn't exist If you go to the world's preeminent vintage car event, the earliest cars ever made, the London to Brighton run, which has just taken place in London, which was to celebrate the repeal of the Red Flag Act. So it's cars pre 1905 cars. You see the very first cars from like the 1890s. No carburetors, no spark plugs. You think, how on earth did, how did these they things go? work yeah. without the most basic components of an internal combustion engine very quickly somebody invented a carburetor because previously get this there used to be an open trough of petrol that would evaporate up into a collector like the horn on an old-fashioned gramophone player and it would feed the evaporated fuel into the engine Quickly, people realized that that was A, really dangerous, and B, incredibly inefficient. Somebody invented the carburetor. We're now in a, in a position where Toyota and Samsung are pioneering solid-state batteries. They are, one, much better than the current L-Ion batteries, which are using a liquid electrolyte, which is pretty unstable. If it sets on fire, you're screwed. Solid-state batteries use a solid-state electrolyte to move from the cathode to the anode, the way that a battery works. They're much safer, they're much more stable, and the cars will have a lot more range. This is a sunrise technology. Electric cars are just getting going. And just like internal combustion cars, they're getting really good, really quick. The technology is moving really fast. In um... five years' time, electric cars will be unrecognizable from the ones that we've got now. They'll have a thousand miles of range, People are going, oh, really? I say, yeah, look at the original cars from the 1890s. I I did the London to Brighton on an 1897 Leon Bollet tricar. It was like a chainsaw engine nailed to a dog kennel. <laughs> but 1905 Benz will carry five people at 50 miles an hour. In 10 years, there was incredible advance in the technology. Why? Because the market drove it. And if the market drives the demand for better electric cars that are more affordable, have greater and the range, charging points. Affordable. Then sorry, and so so, will so, so the will charging
0: happen. points. So the charging points will be there. The batteries will give a much much greater range than they do at the moment. But let me ask you about something else then, and that is think a,
5: about phones, Richie. Yeah. Think about what f- mobile phones are like. My dad Inspector Gadget, we called him when I was a kid, because he loved stuff like that. My dad had one of the first phones. Not only was it massive, it had a separate, like, suitcase that was the battery. <laughs> That's, right. <and> a <laughs> That's right. You had to have a shoulder strap. Yeah. Within a few years, they were. It was the the pace of change. Think what a phone's like now from what it was like ten years ago. It's astonishing technology, and the same thing will happen with electric cars. The ones that we're getting in ten years' time. Will be unrecognizable compared to the stuff that's well. Happening.
0: Well, whether they'll be affordable or not is another thing. We might come back to that. But I, I'm looking at the clock too. I mean, I'm only on air for another ten minutes anyway. But I wanted to ask you. I've got a real problem with self-driving cars. I've got a real issue with privacy. <laughs> with pri- with privacy, <laughs> so right? <have> I. <laughs> I like driving. I like driving. I can't drive like you. I'd love to be able to drive. Maybe one of these days I'll take the very very early. Not sorry, the very basic advanced driving course. Maybe I will. But uh, I do love driving down the country you know the car i've got is comfortable yeah. i enjoy it so yeah. i love that i can't bear the idea of a self-driving car and i also can't bear the implications of that and that is somebody knowing where you are all the time i don't like you that. know
5: where you are all the time now Anyway, i know, you know with the
0: phones the masks I know. Your,
5: phone? yeah, your phone's because, telling yeah. where you are all the time yeah. the device i'm using to talk to you is telling whoever wants to know I i got told about um how f- even phones that are switched off could tell (laughs) you know somebody who knows about this sort of stuff was i said yeah but because he was talking about criminals and i said surely they can just switch off the phones and he said no because they can work out from when it comes on again and all and i was like oh my god i said so we're just basically all all wearing we're carrying trackers around with ourselves he went yeah yeah, they know. Well, you, yeah, know
0: if you, and I, you know, if you and I met for a pint, Sam, we will soon, so I can thank you for coming on and we can have a chat in Manchester. But when um, I buy you a pint, if we've got our devices on the table, we shouldn't do because it's bad manners, right? Uh, is he gone, Steve? Is he just dropped out? He might have just dropped out, I think. He's still there, Steve. Uh, he's there, but he's not there. Let's see if we can get him back on. Even if it's just to say goodbye. I know that other radio, because he does a lot for talk radio and talk sport and what have you, and uh, there are other people trying to call him to get his thoughts on the, not cancellation as such, but the shelving for the time being of, um, say it for me, of uh Top Gear. We might not get him back, actually. Struggling to connect with him there. Uh, you back, Steve. Anyway, you're,
5: talking about, you're talking about people tracking you listening That's to you. That's what then happened.
0: MI5, you see, you're on, <laughs> you, you're on the conspiracy show. No, you're on the, <laughs> no, I, I was going to mention to you, and this has been proven, if we had a point and if our phones were on the table, which is very rude anyway, but if they were... And you started talking to me about, I don't know, anything, something really random, like you were going to take your daughter to ballet lessons and you were looking for um, a costume or whatever. These advertisements do start to show up on your Hotmail. They start to show up on your Facebook and your Twitter. So somebody is listening. I don't mean somebody physically, not a real person, but something is listening when the phones are on. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's scary stuff, isn't it? That you start getting advertisements.
5: Right. Well, let me tell you, if you want to talk about that, let me tell you about how cars are going to work in the future and how road pricing and stuff like that's going to work. Because the problem, the big problem with electric cars is not for us to consume. Well, a big problem is paying for them because they're so bloody expensive, as you pointed out. They're going to get safer. They're going to get better. They're going to get more affordable. But here's the problem there has never been a better way to tax the public than petrol and diesel the tax happens at the point of purchase the tax is impossible to avoid because it's not like you can just make your own petrol or make your own diesel and the amount of duty that's extracted from a litre of petrol and diesel is phenomenal it's a massive earner for the treasury now when they lose that because of electric cars how do they replace it well, here's what's going to happen. And I'm convinced this is what's going to happen. We're all going to have transponders in the car. Some people have them now for the toll road, you know, the M5, M6 near Birmingham. Mike Powell's got one in his window. And as he approaches the barriers, they just open because it knows he's paid his monthly charge to to, to do that. We're all yes. going to have them in our cars. Yes. And it's going to send the DBLA going to send us a bill every month. And it's going to say, you drove this many miles in this month. In a car of this size, and there at these times of the day, because there's going to be different charges for different times of the day, and there's going to be different charges for which bands you go into. It's going to be like buying a ticket on the London Underground or a bus ticket in Manchester or Cardiff or Edinburgh, or wherever you are. You went into this area at this time, and there's your bill. It's all itemized. That's your monthly bill. We know where you've been, when you've been. That's the only way it can work. They've got to replace that revenue that they've been extracting for so long from petrol and diesel and the way that they do it is by taxing you on your car use and the only and the other thing that that will be able to do is that will be able to tell them if you've been speeding or not
0: it will and there's also an argument that this might play some part in some social credit system of of you know judging and evaluating people um i've heard from people on this program again you know clever people with credentials They've said that in the future they'll give us all a carbon allowance. You know, everybody will be given a carbon yeah. as a drive towards this um, you know, net zero madness as I as I call it. And everything you do will be given a score. And uh yeah, and there'll be consequences for people who I, I believe who um who 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 try to, to kind of go against that. I mean this is mainstream but stuff it's now.
5: Argue, it's hard to argue against it, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I I I admitted to you, I got busted, I got done for speeding on Topping Up while I was a Top Gear presenter, served a six-month ban while I was doing it. I've served two bans both for speeding. It's hard to argue against speeding, but you try and find somebody that would be willing to have a device in their car that would enable the police to remotely disable their car or to prevent it from speeding. Yeah. Now, if you said to people, wouldn't it make sense for the police to be able to stop cars, just stop them by typing in something to a computer and it speaks to the computer on your car and it stops the car, it just, the car stops. Well, that's passing, that's gonna be law in the States very soon. Modern new cars sold in the States are gonna have to have a device that enables the authorities to hack into the, just feed into the computer on that car and shut it down.
0: If that's not authoritarianism, Steve, I don't know what is, to be honest.
5: Yeah, but if the police are chasing a car, mate, and it's been stolen, they can just stop it. It's very hard to argue against that, isn't it? Because well, what's the alternative? What? Well, it plows into a crowd. Of course. I saw an accident recently I saw in Houston, Texas. It killed nine people, one car that had been stolen. I know, but it they're so rare, people. though.
0: But those are so rare, those those incidences. And, and am I not entitled as a private citizen to say, Well, you don't get to put that in my car because I don't have a criminal record. I don't um, happen to be a stealer of other people's cars. And therefore, I don't want somebody having the ability to remotely trip out my car because maybe... But
5: here's the problem. Go on. Here's the problem. If the cops do chase people, now, isn't isn't it frequently the case that the cops find themselves in court if something happens? Yeah. Being accused of provoking the chase we had some well what about those those kids that were on that electric scooter and then the police the police they weren't accused of chasing them they were accused of following them and when you watch the video the kids on the scooter were doing like 20 miles an hour and the cops were doing like 20 miles an hour then you thought what if they're going to get if people are going to try and drag the police off to court for following somebody at 20 miles an hour then the police are going to be very reluctant in the same way that they don't like arresting people at riots in case they get in trouble, they go around, they, they take photos of them and go around and arrest them a week later. Yeah. Would it not be better for the police if instead of chasing people, they could just type in the, the number of that vehicle and it would shut it down. Did here's why, the here's it, why, here's why, here's why, sorry Steve, stop.
0: here's why I have a problem, I'm st- just getting a little bit more distortion, right, I want, to, I want to get one final answer from you, you're going to get the final word, by the way, so um, <laughs> back, back, away from, back away from that phone, no, you will get the final word, here's why I've got a problem with it. Because they're openly talking about, COP28 is in nine days' time, they're openly talking about punishing, they said today in The Guardian, right, big study, it's not The Guardian, it's a big, uh, it's a, an NGO has done a big study, and it said that 10%, they, they include people in this country who are earning more than £32,000 a year, they are now including those people in the so-called 10% wealthiest of Britons. Now, this is insane, right? For for anybody who's earning 32 grand to be be labelled as some sort of rich person. So what they're calling for is for these people to have a stick approach applied to them in the future to get them to comply with net zero. And that's around driving and stuff. So here's why I've got a problem with your... Um, thing which on the face of it doesn't sound too bad let the cops trip out a car what happens if that technology is put into every car Steve and in the near future works, uh, yeah, let, hang on hang on let me, let, let me, let me see because you're going to get the final word and then we're going we're to have to wrap up the programme what if in the near future um, Mr Berry you've got a carbon allowance you we, yeah. we, we asked you not to be taking your car out every weekend. But, Mr. Berry, you persist in doing it. So we've disabled your car remotely. You see, Steve, that application becomes live in this mad rush to net zero. So that's why I would be very reluctant to accept it. I'm going to give you the final word. And before I give you the final word, it's been a pleasure, mate. I hear so much about you from Paul, because oh, right. Paul loves yeah, you to bits. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Yeah, right, it's been great right, to meet right. you. So final yeah. word to you then. Am I paranoid or what?
5: yeah but probably with good reason but here's the thing i've been at this motoring journalism game for 40 years now and whilst i'm struggling with holding these two ideas i often struggle with holding two ideas in my head at the same time (laughs) not just because i'm a man but because uh i've got a curiosity an enduring curiosity that's driven me all my life i still believe that the passenger car the affordability which is why i think the mini was the greatest motor car and will always be the greatest motor car of all time. Not an Aston Martin DB5, not a Jaguar E-Type, not any fancy Rolls-Royce or Bentley. The Alec Isagonis Mini, the original Mini, was it democratised motoring. It brought motoring to the ordinary people of the United Kingdom. The Ford Model T did that in the States a lot. A lot. I mean, and in Italy, it was the Fiat 500. In France, it was the 2CV. You know, most of the motoring countries had their mini moments. I was with 59 and the Issa Mini. But it's not, then cars aren't really an effective way to move people around. Cars spend a massive percentage of their life just sitting there, taking up space, doing nothing. And to the powers that be, they are they are great, do as I say, not as I do types, aren't they? And so they are able to think, we need to put the man on the Clapham omnibus back on the Clapham omnibus and get him out of his motor car. We need to penalise him and tax him and legislate against against him or her. And make the insurance affordable and make the test impossible to pass and impose all kinds of restrictions on the parking and the use of that car. So much so that while not banning it outright, we make it so difficult and so expensive and such a massive pain in the backside. Richie, I've got I've been a motoring journalist all my life, all my working life. I've got three kids who are now in the late twenties or early thirties. Only one of the three drives. Only one of the three. That's interesting. Man. And they grew up yeah. in a household with cars and motorcycles. The all of the
0: damn yeah.
5: Steve, because we've got can't be ordered. It's too expensive, it's too difficult they've given so up on the time they're pricing,
0: they're, they're pricing us out of it that's all we have time for today because I've got to wrap it up you've been very generous with your time I know you've been in great demand today because of the Top Gear news meant it when I said pleasure to meet you mate um, and thanks for the show you do for Fab Radio, it's excellent fabradiointernational.com you have been listening to um, the most accomplished journalist we've had on this programme for a long time uh, 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 Steve Berry. thank you Steve, great to have you on pal I really appreciate it and he's gone It's tricked out again, the phone, I think. Uh, Thanks to Steve Berry. And thanks to Paul Ripley, by the way, for making that happen. And that's uh, about all I've got time for today. Lots of messages came in during that segment. I'm sorry I couldn't get to them. Uh, We covered quite a bit in any case. Uh, I'm back with you tomorrow morning early with The Papers. The Papers podcast will be on air tomorrow uh, around about uh, it depends. It should be on by nine but sometimes it's on a little bit earlier than than, than I say because I'm up pretty early doing it. So The Papers, it's new-ish. It's uh, downloadable only. It's not live. And I'm back with you on The Richie Allen Show tomorrow at five o'clock UK time. As I was talking with Steve there, uh, jean Ann Crowley was listening to it. My 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 mate in Cleggan, in Connemara, and Steve brought up the Honda 50, didn't he? And he said um, the most successful, I think he said the most successful combustion engine in history. It had to be, because every Chinese man in China, when it first emerged, Japanese, yeah, but they they, they rode them in China too, didn't they? Or was it Japan? Japan, Japan. Honda's a Japanese uh, uh, company, of course. But in Ireland, particularly in Waterford, when I was a young lad growing up in the early 80s, it seemed that there was an abundance of Honda 50s on the road. So Jean-Anne Crowley says to me, I bet you won't be able to dig out Christy Moore's my little Honda 50. I did dig it out. Here it is. Until tomorrow, thanks to Steve Berry and thanks very much to Kate Deeming earlier on as well. Bye now. My
4: little Honda 50.